0: It's hard to believe that it's been 2 years since we last had uh, people in the building for an Easter service. Our last Easter service at the building was April 24th, uh, 21st, I'm sorry, of 2019. Um, And things in that time looked quite different than they do today. Like in 2019, if you were wearing a mask, um, people would think there was something seriously wrong with you. And then if you, like, asked a hospitality team member if you could socially distance, first they would have no idea what that meant. And then they would probably call the police and say there was a suspicious person at the building. Um, That's just the truth. Things are weird, aren't they? Uh, two years ago, we had like 1,200 people in the building for Easter, um, and, and between the three, uh, you know, every seat was filled, and we had services, and, you know, and you would sit next to any person, you know, as long as you can get a seat. Um, and here we are, you know, uh, a couple years later, and our, our three services are probably going to have, you know, 400 people or so. Things things are weird. You're walking in, getting your temperature checked. You have pre-registration and on and on and on. Um, it, it's even strange because there's there's an air of um, suspicion in the air, isn't there, um, around stuff. You, you might have thought to yourself as you walked in, those people on stage are singing without a mask, you know. Uh, are they allowed to do this? And I don't know. Maybe you're right. I don't know. But, but the point is that there's fear and concern in the air and things are weird. Like, like we've been so divided. Things, uh, I, I say, some are specific, uh, some are suspicious, but there's others who are thinking that all this stuff is stupid. And I, I get that too. I'm not making any specific point at all. All I'm just saying is that, for lack of a better word, things have been strange. So much has uh, been taken from us. This past year has been filled with incalculable amounts of grief and immeasurable amounts of frustration and disappointment. And ultimately, that's because this past season, the season that we're in right now has been a season, has been a season. Yes, play the music. This is not what I meant to do. If, you, if you've been part of the Broward Church for any more long, uh, length of time, you know that I've had so many problems with this clicker. <laughs> it's been a season of... Perfect. Hey, my name is Andrew um, You can just change the slides for it. it. It's, it's been, been a, a season of waiting. Of our church on May 18th. <laughs> can you can you can you put can you put the next slide? Yeah, there you go. Waiting. <laughs> Hasn't it been a season of waiting? Waiting. And what I just learned is that uh, waiting is hard. <laughs> especially, and you can go to the next slide, especially when you're waiting for good news. Um and it's interesting to me because this idea of waiting for good news is actually one of the major themes in the Bible. Um, it all over the place. We see this concept in the scriptures, maybe not so uh, not written this way, but that we see this idea that good news is on the way. You can change the slide. Good news is on the way. You know, throughout the throughout the biblical text, we see people in seasons not too dissimilar from what we're facing over these last eighteen months. In fact, the characters in the Bible are so rich because their struggle is very similar to our struggle. They have to figure out how to navigate faith while they're waiting on God to deliver something good. We see this throughout the Bible, but I want to show you one of the passages that, um, as kind of an introduction to this lesson, that has inspired me so much about the beauty of good news. It's in Isaiah chapter fifty-two, verse seven. There's this description of the way that I can feel, and I bet it's the way that many of you have felt in this past season. And here's the context. The people of Israel in Isaiah's time are, are going through turmoil. Their nation has been destroyed. They're living in fear and in doubt and in a lot of confusion. They're waiting for a better world, something new to take shape. You know that feeling, don't you? But then in the middle of all the bad news, the Bible paints this beautiful picture. There's a person looking out and they see this person running they're sitting at the city gates waiting for some news from the, from the nation, waiting to hear a message, a herald to come and say something beautiful. And so what happens is there's this description, this picture. I imagine, you know, the, 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 the herald running and dust is billowing behind him as he's sprinting with a message of hope. And this is what Isaiah says about this messenger. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news who proclaim peace, who bring good tiding, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. As this people wait and watch and wonder, Isaiah describes this scene, someone has finally come to bring good news. It's news of liberty to those bound in fear. It's good news to the weary and the heavy laden who are under the burden and the oppression of their own lives. It's good news to the wanderers and to the frustrated. It's good news to those who feel like they just need to shake off the dust of their own doubt and loose loose themselves from the binds of their own disappointment. They're waiting on good news. And here's what I've learned in my whole life is that good news is incredibly powerful, isn't it? You get a call after you take that test, and you're worried for days. What is the doctor going to say? And the phone rings, and they say, Hey, you're all clear. The soul breathes a sigh of relief, doesn't it? Yeah. You've been trying for years to get pregnant, and then you look down, you see those two red lines, and you can't help but shout for joy. You heard back, you've been waiting, and you got the job. Your offer was accepted. Look, good news does something to the soul, doesn't it? Yeah. And maybe that's the reason why good news is on the way. is such a major theme of the Bible, and so today, on Easter morning, I want to be a messenger for you. I want to have, quote unquote, beautiful feet. Amen. Maybe you're familiar with the Christian faith, and, and maybe you're not, and you come with nothing. But, but, but whoever you are, and however you come here today, what we're going to talk about today, I bet you, will be good news to your soul. To start, I want to take a look the beginning and the end of the book of Mark. Um, You can go ahead and turn there with me if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, no big deal. It'll be up on the screen. But we're going to look at a couple of passages in the book of Mark to kind of begin to to unpack this idea that good news is on the way, but it's not just on the way. It, in fact, is here. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, this is what it says. It says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. There's a literary device in a lot of early writings called an escipit, something like that. Um, Basically, um, authors would put a summary of the entire book in the first line of the book. And they did that because papyrus um, in the old days was incredibly expensive, And so you have to kind of summarize, kind of give the author's notes at the very start. So what you find in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, is what all of Mark will be about. It will be about the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so if you can wrap your head around Mark chapter 1, you can wrap your head around the entire book of Mark. And I would also argue if you can wrap your head around Mark chapter 1, verse 1, you can also wrap your mind around the point of Easter. So let's take it word by word. The first thing we see and that i like to point out is that it's good news. You may have a Bible that says gospel. You may say in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That word gospel there is translated euangelion, and it basically means gospel. In the the first century... um, it wasn't actually a religious word at all. You may hear it now and think, man, I love that gospel music and it's kind of related to church stuff. But, but, but really, in the Roman Empire, gospel wasn't a religious word at all. It was actually a political word used by the Roman government. Uh, Euangelion was a royal announcement that would go out with a herald. It was the modern day equivalent of kind of a newspaper, but all it was was good news. Imagine a newspaper like that. What a great newspaper that would be. The messages were usually about one of two things. One, a king was born or put in power. And the second was that an army had just won a decisive battle. So it would sound something like this. You would see someone running into your village. You'd be the man on the city gates looking out, trying to, to know if there was someone coming. And then billowing behind them would be the smoke that they run with, and they're sprinting with a message from whomever. And it would say something like this Caesar is king. And everyone would burst into cheers. Or he just defeated Octavian in the Civil War. He brought peace and salvation. And then the evangelion would end with something, according to many biblical scholars, with Caesar is Lord. That was the gospel of the first century. That was good news. But the thing you learn very quickly about good news is that good news is not necessarily good for everyone. Like if you were suffering under Roman oppression like the Jews in Mark's day were, none of that would have been good news. How is it good news that the the country that has destroyed your lives is continuing to reign? How is it good news that another king has been slain? How is it good news that someone else is dying to your murderous ways? How is that any good news at all? Good news, you find, really is in the eye of the beholder, whether or not it's any good at all. And so Mark's euangelion, his gospel isn't about Caesar or any earthly king or battle for that matter, but he says the good news is a new type of king, a new type of leader who has come on the scene. His name is Jesus. Um, David Garland uh, wrote this. He says, gospel refers to the story about Jesus's narrative in the text. It comprises of Jesus's word, deed, death, and resurrection. As God directs Intervention into history. It challenges an imperial cult propaganda. Catch that. An imperial cult propaganda that promotes a message of good tidings and a, and a new age of peace through the Roman Empire. The good news of the day was, hey, the empire is still reigning. It's good. It's peace. It's salvation. It's awesome. And Mark goes, that's not good news at all. In fact, the gospel of Jesus redefined good news forever. See, the book of Mark, in many ways, is an attack on the propaganda of Rome and also an attack on the religious elite of Jesus' day. Just think about it. The good news of Rome was king is, is sitting on the throne while the people live in abject poverty. The king is sitting on a throne, has once again killed another nation. Another people have been pillaged by the powerful and what's the good news of Jesus? Well, here's somebody who loves those who hate him, who tells you to turn the other cheek, who speaks, who's powerful enough to stand up against religious corruption, who's so secure that he taught his, his followers not to hate people, but to love their neighbor as they love themselves. Mark is telling his audience, that's good news. You wanna hear good news? I got something totally different than what you grew up with. Good news is not the powerful staying in power so they can continue to abuse those who are under them. Good news isn't that we, you know, stay in the same system of the world that has caused so much pain. Good news isn't that the hurting continue to be hurt or the broken stay broken or the sick remains sick or the abuser gets away. That's not good news at all. See, this counterattack against the culture of the day is throughout the whole book. But its implications, I would argue, really stay just as powerful to this day. And I want to talk about two reasons why, two reasons that good news of the gospel is actually good news. It's right here in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. I'll hit them both really quickly. I'll tie it into Easter, and then I'll bring it all the way back around. That's what I'm going to try to do. Let's see what happens. (laughs) Let's talk about why the good news of Jesus is actually good news. There's two reasons. One is because he offers a new world, and the second is because he offers a new way. The opening phrase of the gospel is in or the beginning of the good news. It's interesting because the opening phrase of the Bible is in the beginning. And, it's in, it's, and when you translate, when, um, how do I explain this? When the Old Testament was translated to Greek, there was, this would be the exact same phrase they used. In the beginning, in its original text, right, Mark was saying right from the beginning, he's trying to draw you in and tell you something that's really unique, that the good news of Jesus takes us all the way back to the bad news of Eden. Wow. These connections are really made throughout the whole Bible, and here's a really fun one. In Mark chapter 10 verse 1, Jesus is baptizing, uh, being baptized by John in the Jordan River. And and this is what it says. It says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Here's why this is so cool. In the Bible that Mark read, something called the Aramaic Tardigum, Genesis 1-1 would have read something like this. And this comes from the Institute of uh, Biblical and Scientific Studies. It would have read something like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was uninhabitable and like a wasteland. And the Spirit of God flapped His wings over the waters like a dove. Isn't that cool? So, what is Mark saying? He remember that dove from the beginning. Remember the Spirit that descended on the world. Well, guess what? It's back. And this type of creation language is hinted to, alluded at, echoed, and even quoted throughout Mark's gospel. Why? Well, as uh, one scholar says, for Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less monumentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. Mark is telling us that in Jesus, there is a recreation happening. If you look at the entire scope of the Bible, it's just so cool. You can see, you can play out the storyline of the Bible in three ways creation, decreation, and then recreation. In stage one, creation, God made the whole world and everything was good and everything was in harmony and beautiful, and human beings, Adam and Eve, were given the good world to rule. They were supposed to take up the potential of the world and make something beautiful. But you know the story, that is followed by decreation. Adam and Eve turned away from God in the fall and turned instead to sin. And the sin was then let loose on all of the human race. Creation spiraled out of control from generation to generation to generation. It just continued to spiral because it's a sickness in our hearts. And we all feel this, right? We see that there is just something wrong with this place. Why is there so much evil? Why do people kill one another Why do people exploit one another? Why? Well, it's all because the world is no longer in sync with its creator. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Something is out of whack. And it's not just the world, but honestly, there's something wrong with you and me too, isn't there? Like, why are we bent towards doing wrong things? There's something wrong in the human condition. We're born sort of like with a tilt towards evil that we have to constantly keep in check. So in Mark 1, Mark is saying, hey, there's a connection for us here. Jesus was giving birth to a new world. He was recreating the world for us. The world was coming to life again. A new world where someone loves the leper. A new world where someone cares for the poor and gives dignity to all. A new world where the shame is pushed back and the power is in check. As one children's Bible read, referencing my favorite book, in Jesus, all the sad things come untrue. J.R.R. Tolkien, kinda. (laughs) It's not really him, but it is his quote. Good news is coming. Good news is coming. A world is coming. A new world is coming. But that's not all. You look back at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says, it's the beginning of the good news about Jesus. And then he gives them two titles, the Messiah, second title the son of god this may seem like not that big of a deal but these two titles both have profound implications the first is that christ or as this my bible says the messiah means the anointed one it's the people who would lead the men lead the men and women of god back to its creator who would keep them who would connect them back to the divine the messiah the anointed one. It was the word for the person whose way we should follow to get back to the creator. But he's given another title. It's not just the Messiah. It's also the title of the son of God. The son of God is language often used by the Roman Caesar. It started with Augustus who claimed to be the son of God. And it was such a popular phrase that a typical Roman coin in Mark's day would have Caesar's face on one side and the opposite side, a Latin phrase, which meant son of God. What is Mark saying? You know the religious elite, those who think they are like the Messiah? And you know the way of the Caesar? Both their ways are no more. Instead, there's someone else who is in control now. What a powerful statement that is just from the very beginning of Mark's gospel. And this was a dangerous good news. Treasonous, in fact. It's no wonder Jesus was executed by the religious elite and the Roman government as a criminal. And all the apostles minus one were executed and millions of Jesus followers throughout the year have been put to death. People who would say Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. This euangelion wasn't just a religious cliche. It's a statement saying something real about the way that we think about what's appropriate in life. It's a statement about whose culture we will follow. It's a statement that should bring us to kind of some sort of intensity about the idea that the old order of things or the old way of things is not a good way to live. That we actually must sort of organize our steps in the way we live by something greater than the Caesar or the culture or the religious elite. It's a statement that's saying that the real true bridge between heaven and earth, the mediator between God and man, And the one we should allow to order our steps is not Caesar, but it's Jesus. See, Mark, for the rest of the book, will continue to push in these two ideas that a new way is coming. I'm sorry, a new world is coming and a new way is coming. And again, these two storylines run all the way through Mark, but it's in Mark chapter 16 at Easter where the storyline reached the dramatic climax. This is Easter morning, the first Easter morning in Mark chapter 16, verse 1. I'm going to read it to you. And as I read it to you, just take notice of the the response of the women. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, They were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? They're expecting to find a dead body, and as they get there, they're going to anoint the dead body of Jesus. Certainly, they had hoped that he would be something greater, but it turned out that he wasn't, at least in their mind. He was a great teacher. He was a great rabbi. But he really wasn't who he claimed to be, and the least that we can do is go anoint the body go connect with the body it says but when they looked up they saw that the stone which was very large had been rolled away and as they entered the tomb they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed don't be alarmed he said you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified he has risen He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, this should be a moment of celebration. What? You know, like, they're like, yeah. Like they're super pumped and they start sprinting back to the disciples to interact with them. This should be a moment of salvation, of super, super celebration. But notice the words. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, if they had believed that when Jesus said, or if they understood that when Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead, they actually believed it was going to happen or they knew it was going to happen, this moment would have been a moment of celebration. But instead, it's a moment of fear, bewilderment, and trembling. They're afraid. Those are the words used to describe Mary and these women. The women are scared to death on the first Easter morning. Why? Here's where we get to the good stuff. The short answer is because for centuries, they were waiting. They had heard through the scriptures and through the teachers that good news was on the way, that a new world was on the way, the recreation was on the way. They believed that one day the creator God was going to fix the world. They believed that, that, that a new heaven and a new earth would be birthed at some time. They believed that recreation was going to happen one day. At the end of history, right? When God makes everything right, when he comes back and he restores all things, when he makes it right, But they, they expected it. But at Easter, nobody was expecting that one day would become today. You could put it this way, the resurrection means that Jesus dragged the future into the present and opened up a new world and a new way right in the middle of this one. N.T. Wright says, when Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning, he rose as the beginning of a new world that Israel's God had always intended to make. That is the first and most important thing to know about the meaning of Easter. The world that God had always intended to create in the future, he did in the middle of history. Easter is the start of a movement away from the old order of life into something brand new where men and women could begin to see heaven and earth sort of like kiss one another by living out the teachings of Jesus. And when we get right When we get it right, it's like opening up a portal to heaven in the middle of the world. How cool is that? The gospel is saying, yeah, you've been waiting for good news, but good news has come. It's not on the way. There's no more wondering. There's no more trying to figure out what's the best way to live and how do I figure out how to restore the world? There's no more of that. It's here. Easter is a celebration that recreation is at hand. The resurrection is the inauguration of that idea. You, you know, you may look and think, you know, it was thousands of years ago, though, and the world is still destroyed, and it was a different language, and they wore different clothes, you know, or whatever, and think, well, what does this have to do with me? Well, it has everything to do with you. Here's the end of Mark's Gospel, verse fifteen. He that's Jesus said to them, this is after he rose from the dead. After they already interacted, now he's telling them to move forward. He's telling them, hey, this is what you need to do. Go into the world and preach that good news, the gospel, to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Jesus, back from the dead, tells his followers, go tell people. What are you going to tell people? "Oh, Oh, simply go tell people. Go make disciples. Go be the beautiful feet of good news. Teach anybody who will listen that there is a new way to live. You can escape from the Truman Show. You can hit the hatch. You can leave this corrupt world behind. You can get out of the rat race and out of the hamster wheel. You can escape from the lies the world tells you and the lies your soul, your your inner sort of self, evil self tells you, your flesh tells you. You You don't have to only value what you achieve. Your whole life doesn't have to be about how pretty you look and what car you drive. You can actually escape the matrix. You can escape from the tyranny of social media and a 24-hour news cycle. You can escape from the constant pull of the patterns of the world. You don't have to live in this divided culture anymore. You can live in a world with other people trying to restore God's good world. You can actually hit the eject button. And get out of this nonsense that we're in right now. You can find a hatch. And be free from this world. Look, what I'm trying to tell you is that every one of us look at the world and go, there's a problem here. And all of us think, I wish there was a better way. And Jesus, 2,000 years ago, was like, there is. There is. How do you do it? You embrace the way of Jesus. A way where your life is not focused on how much you can get. A way where your life is not focused on how good you look. But a way where your life is focused on being like his. You cast your anxieties onto him. You take your burden and your fears and your pain. You throw it on him. And he teaches you how to carry it. And then he, in exchange, he gives you life. The Bible says that is truly life. So I asked you. Have you escaped the ways of the world? If not, you can. The Easter story can be yours. How? How do you do that? Well, here's a, if you're new here, here's an introduction. Come practice the way of Jesus with us. I'm serious. Like, come alongside the church. And maybe you've been disconnected for a while. You know, you know, the pandemic has left you all confused about your own faith or whatever. You're watching online and you've been, you know, you're not sure about anything and, and you've been disconnected from the church. But I'm inviting you back. Just come practice the way of Jesus with us. Amen. Come alongside this church. First, just come week after week or watch week after week. Sit, learn, worship. And then learn yourself to read your Bible deeply and carefully. Have someone else in your life as a mentor. Helping you practice what Jesus did. Live with this in mind. What would Jesus do if he were you? And when you decide, after you realize that his way is significantly better than any other way there's ever been. And you realize that you can actually escape this corrupt, disgusting world. After you realize that, then make a decision, if you need to, to get baptized. In another place, Paul writes that baptism is a metaphor for death. You die to your sin, your past, and your shame. Then comes the burial where you go underwater and then resurrection where you're raised to life with a new life in God. Some of you today, that's your next step. You can do that. You can step into the waters. You can repent of your sin. You can put your faith in Jesus. But I know that's only like half of us here. The other half of us have you know, been Christians for a long time and some of you are doing super great. You know, you're getting ready for brunch, springs in the air. You're wearing pastels. You know, you know what I'm saying? Tomorrow candy is half off. Can you believe that? And, and you, just, you just need to enjoy your Easter. You know, amen. Like, just celebrate. It's awesome. But there's others of you that no matter what you're wearing, you're not doing well. You're suffering. Life is really challenging now. And maybe it's because you, were one, you had once escaped the world, but it's just sucked you all the way back. It's fine-sounding arguments, and it's a beautiful lie. It's just coerced you back into its midst. I'm just asking you, you too, you can escape as well. And I remind you, the good news is not someday. Good news is here, today. And like that child's Bible says, you know, Jesus can make all the sad things come untrue. Mm-hmm. Jesus can do what the cynic in you and the cynic in me says is impossible. And you don't have to wait anymore because it's here. You can live like him. Stop just coming, stop just attending, stop just reading, and actually begin to do what he says. So, what are you waiting for? The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. Good news is bursting from, from uh, at the seams. A new way is calling. And a new world is here for us to occupy.